This week on Monocle Reports, is Europe headed for a democratic crisis? Poland is taking its security and the alliance's obligations very seriously. On matters of security, Poland's president is with Europe, but its so-called judicial reforms have led to questions over the country's rule of law. Meanwhile, in Germany... We ask all the other countries, you can take one to four million illegal migrants from Africa and try to solve your democratic problems with them. Go for it. We don't want that. We don't think that this is solving our problems. This is causing problems. The far-right alternative for Deutschland party is making gains, despite suspiciously close ties to the Kremlin. And it's not the only party on the extreme end of politics finding its way into the mainstream. Is democracy in trouble? And can the European Union do anything about it? From Midori House in London, I'm Ben Rylan, and this is Monocle Reports. On the 1st of January 1999, Europe's new single currency, the euro, made its official debut. So the euro is starting off on a fairly firm note. We're up around about 1% now from uh, the levels um, at the time of the, uh, the conversion. In less than a decade, however, the euro was already facing an existential challenge as the scale of the global financial crisis in 2008 became painfully clear. This is a CNBC special report. Is your money safe? The fall of Lehman Brothers. CBS News special report. A presidential address to the nation. Evening. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. In Europe, Slovenia had just joined the euro, followed by Malta and Cyprus. That same year, leaders of the European Union announced a stimulus plan for the European economy worth 200 billion euros in a bid to prevent recession. But the worst was yet to come. Greece is on the verge of default tonight, hours from what many believe is a near certainty it will miss a Tuesday deadline. In 2010, the European Union revealed severe irregularities in Greece's budget, and the country's deficit was revised from 3.7% to 12.7%, more than four times the maximum allowed under EU rules. Greece's future in the EU became an open question, but it was just one of many European countries grappling with massive debt and austerity. Europe's debt crisis has worsened. Ireland has joined Portugal and Greece as the third Eurozone nation to have its credit rating downgraded to junk status. Germany has one of the world's most developed economies, but even it wasn't immune to the dangers of the crisis. The Federal Republic experienced its worst decline ever, with the country's manufacturing sector hit especially hard. Stephanie Boltzen is the London correspondent for Die Welt. I think the particular event or time was in the spring of 2010 when it was clear that Greece was literally defaulting and there were, was one emergency summit after another. I, as it happens, I was a correspondent in Brussels then and I remember we hardly couldn't leave the council building anymore because... There were overnight summits. There was a real feel of existential threat to the whole project of the Eurozone. And of course, Germany played a crucial role because Germany was going to be the country that would have to pay the biggest amounts of money to bail out the Greek state. What was the initial reaction amongst Germany's lawmakers, the political reaction? The political reaction was pretty sceptical. I mean, there was a mixture of political and, and public reaction. 
there was a kind of, well, I would almost say we experienced a clash of civilizations. And I mean, from this time, to be honest, also comes quite awareness of the German role in the European Union, because Germany was seen as the Sparmeister, the country that was dictating the Greeks a very harsh time of austerity. But that was reflecting very much the national mood, which was kind of, well, if you spend more than you actually have in your pocket, that's the price you have to pay. And it also reflected a certain, I mean, it's it's in the German mentality to be very careful about spending money. And a lot, many in the German public thought, well, we have been hardworking, we have been saving our money. Those Greeks and Spaniards, they, the so-called Club Mediterranean, if they spend more than they actually have, why should we pay for them? And in retrospect, it's clear now that this was quite a turning point for those on the far right of the political spectrum. Were you aware of that at the time? I was certainly aware of that because in those days there were a lot of judicial cases brought to the German Constitutional Court. There were parties or groups of people who actually sued the German government for bailing out countries such as Ireland or Greece because they saw that in breach of the European treaties because the European treaties say, in fact, no country in the Eurozone is not allowed to bail out countries in the Eurozone and it still it happened and that's why we went through a lot of domestic political turmoil because every bailout had to be or every extension of the bailout program had to be adopted by the Bundestag, the German parliament. The politics of far-right parties such as the Alternative for Deutschland, the party you referenced there, they're quite different to the regimes we might describe as authoritarian, but some members of that party have spoken of the governments of Hungary, of Poland, as allies of the AFD. Do you think that complicates matters for journalists in Germany when covering the erosion of democracy in other European countries, that a somewhat popular party at home shares many of those same undemocratic values? It is certainly not easy to cover the Alternative for Deutschland if you are a reporter in Berlin or in anywhere in Germany on two levels. There has been, I mean, my own colleagues have experienced quite some threatening situations when they were reporting on marches and protests, especially in Eastern Germany, where they met not necessarily always supporters of the Alternative for Deutschland, but right-wing protesters or the so-called Pegida, which is an anti-Islam movement. They have been physically threatened by people at this protest march and prevented from reporting on these marches. At the same time, it is quite a challenge to cover AFD politics and to be critical of AFD politics. I've experienced that myself. You, you get a lot of disturbing, sometimes disturbing reactions, very often from anonymous sources. You get a lot of quite disturbing reaction on social media. But in the end, if you are a journalist and you are out there, that's your challenge and you got to manage it. Of course, in the background of all of this, there's Russia, which has played a crucial role in helping propel the rise of the AFD. And of course, the AFD has expressed some alignment with the regimes of Hungary as well. Can you explain a little bit about how the forces of Hungary, how the politics of Russia has helped give the AFD more of a platform? Probably it's best to give a a very simple example, but it's, it's a kind of example from real life. So 
Germany saw the refugee crisis in the summer of 2015 and not much, a couple of months afterwards, there was the case, the alleged case of a, of a girl that claimed that she had, I mean, she disappeared for a couple of days and then she was found and she claimed that she had been assaulted and raped by refugees. She came from a Russian-German family and the story went completely viral, in, especially in Russia and was covered heavily by Russian-speaking media. That was then picked up, especially by right-wing German parties or movements like the Alternative for Deutschland, as a, actually as proving that the people who were coming in from Syria and beyond, in reality, they were not refugees or asylum seekers, they were criminals, or in the worst case, even they were terrorists. That was actually the first time that Germany on a broader scale experienced the effect of fake news because it came out that girl had made up that story. But the story was there. And in that case, it proved that uh, very much it was that the story became so big and had such an effect was also with the help of Russian media and Russian uh, trolls and Russian social media that is very much led and managed by the Kremlin. Stephanie Bolton from Die Welt. Many Germans have long suspected a link between the AFD and Russia. This May, some of those suspicions were confirmed when German media, citing Russian sources, reported that three members of the AFD took a flight on a private jet to Moscow during a campaign in 2017, with expenses covered by a mysterious donor. Russia's network of online bots and trolls designed to inflame divisions and support far-right political candidates across Europe is by now a barely concealed secret. But its public meddling in German politics, coupled with the AFD's affinity for Europe's authoritarian regimes, raises the stakes to a new level. But why is Russia apparently so intent on destroying the European project? And if Europe's democracies are so vulnerable to disruption, isn't the same also true in Russia? Stephen Diel covered the collapse of the Soviet Union for the BBC. He explains how the Kremlin became such a paranoid institution and why its foundations may not be as solid as they appear. In days when Anglo-Russian diplomatic relations fluctuate, the first pictures of Field Marshal Montgomery's visit to Moscow serve to remind us that when ordinary Englishman meets ordinary Russian, misunderstandings disappear, and it is merely a meeting of citizens of the world with common interests and common hopes. The term revolution had a number of different meanings in Russia in the 20th century. When spelt with a capital letter, the revolution was taken to mean the Great October Socialist Revolution of 1917. This was when the Bolsheviks seized power and, after one of the bloodiest civil wars ever seen, established the Soviet Union. This was already the third revolution Russia had seen that century. The first, in 1905, came in the wake of a humiliating defeat for Russia in the Russo-Japanese War and called for social change. A few half-hearted attempts were made at reform, such as creating the country's first parliament, the Duma, but little changed in the country. In February 1917, with Russia suffering badly because of the First World War, a revolution overthrew the Tsar. A provisional government was established, but the Bolshevik coup d'etat in October put a swift end to that. For the next 70 years, little changed in Russia. The Communist Party, as the Bolsheviks had become, held a firm grip on power, maintaining the status quo with the help of a brutal secret police force, 
which would not tolerate any dissent. But in the late 1980s, a revolution of a different kind took place. Good evening, this is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. Konstantin Chernyenko was the oldest man ever to have top power in the Soviet Union, and he held that power for the briefest time, three days short of 13 months. The death of Chernyenko was not a surprise, but the speed with which Mikhail Gorbachev took over the leadership was. Realizing that the Soviet Union could not continue with a failing economy and an increasing arms race with the United States of America, the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev set in motion a program of reform under the names Glasnost, Openness, and Perestroika, Restructuring. The idea was that if the USSR was to be open about its failings, which it never had been, it could do something about changing and improving things. General Secretary and Mrs. Gorbachev, I've welcomed a good number of foreign leaders to the White House in these last seven years. And today marks a visit that is perhaps more momentous than many which have preceded it, because it represents a coming together not of allies, but of adversaries. But Gorbachev's quiet revolution became louder as the pillar of fear on which the Soviet system stood crumbled away. People began to demand liberty, such as free speech, political pluralism, and independence for the various non-Russian nationalities within the Soviet Union. This is NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw. Tonight, the Soviet coup. Now from NBC News headquarters in New York, Tom Brokaw. Good evening. Wednesday, August 21st, 1991. A day for bold print in history. Remembered and savored as the day when the power of the people in the Soviet Union proved to be greater than the power of the gray and cold-blooded men who thought they could return their country to the darkness of state oppression. In 1991, matters came to a head when hardliners tried to turn back the clock. But the old system was swept away on a tide of enthusiasm and chaos. This Russian revolution left the people with the freedom to think and say what they wanted, but frequently with no money or jobs to achieve it. Arguably, the last Russian revolution of the 20th century was the one which saw Vladimir Putin come to power on the last day of the century. Seeking someone who would guarantee him a safe retirement, Boris Yeltsin handed power to the ex-KGB officer Putin, probably neither realizing nor caring that in doing so, he was paving the way for Russia to turn back to the days of restricted freedoms and a one-party police state. Unless he dies in office, Putin will have been running Russia at least for the first quarter of the 21st century. It is a period which has not only seen freedom in Russia manacled, but after an initial upturn, has seen living standards plummet and nationalism and intolerance of any dissenting views increase. While many in Russia praise Putin for giving Russia back its pride on the world stage, more liberal-minded citizens are bitterly disappointed by the lack of democracy, the absence of open debate and political pluralism, and the way in which anyone disagreeing with the official line is labelled as a traitor or a fascist. In 2017, as Russia noted but hardly celebrated the centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution, the country witnessed the biggest mass demonstrations which it had seen since the heady days of Piristroika. The younger generation in particular responded across the country to calls for protests against corruption among the ruling clique. 
These were led by Alexei Navalny, who would have presented a genuine opposition candidate to President Putin had he been allowed to stand in the presidential election of March 2018. He was excluded on trumped-up criminal charges. But what the Navalny-inspired demonstrations showed is that there are dissenting views in Putin's Russia. And this creates a real dilemma for Putin and his circle, especially as living standards continue to decline. This decline is happening for a number of reasons. The Russian economy remains far too dependent on natural resources, especially oil and gas. Despite much talk since the fall of the Soviet Union of diversification and encouraging the growth of small and medium businesses, far too little has been done. So when the world oil price falls, Russia suffers. This situation has been made even worse by the imposition of Western sanctions following the seizure of Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Despite the bravado of the leadership, these sanctions have had a serious effect on the availability of goods for a population who increasingly do not remember the days of shortages which characterised the Soviet economy. This and the suppression of liberty are fueling an undercurrent of discontent in society. For now, Putin and his security services, much beefed up in recent years, have been able to keep a lid on dissent. But what he perhaps fears most of all is a phenomenon known in Russia as bunt. This is the spontaneous outbreak of protest turning to violence, something which happened in 1905. A small spark, even a local protest about housing conditions, could lead to the swift spread of protest across the country. And even with enhanced security services, Putin may not be able to prevent it. The result could be very different from what it was in 1905. Putin may believe that he has stability, but does he know just how firm its foundations are? That was the Russia analyst Stephen D.L. This is Monocle Reports, a weekly analysis of politics and the media. I'm Ben Rylan. The latest issue of Monocle magazine includes an interview with Melkotsata Gerstorf, president of the Supreme Court in Poland. She warns that her country is now the hull of a democracy, tending towards authoritarianism. Since Poland's ruling Law and Justice Party came to power in 2015, it's tightened its grip on the country's judiciary, forcing out judges and blurring the lines between political power games and the rule of law. Dr. Rok Dunan Vonsevich is from the Department of Social Science at the UCL Institute of Education. Some say Poland is sliding into authoritarianism. Others call it illiberalism. What do you make of recent developments? I think we should differentiate between those terms. The first one, authoritarianism, I don't think there is enough evidence to make that claim. Authoritarianism implies restrictions and personal freedoms and elections not really taking place. This isn't happening in Poland. This has not been happening in Poland, thankfully. And recent local elections are also a testament to this, to the to the vibrancy of Polish democracy. At the same time, illiberalism, absolutely. And that's not only happening in Poland, it's happening all over Europe. But I would say this happens on a discursive level. So it's part of the discourse that the government is producing. It's part of their view of the world. It's very conservative, very nationalist. This is something that they use in order to rally support. This is what some sociologists called a discursive strategy. So populism is more on 
what is said rather than what is being done. They delineate very stark differences between us and them, between the elite and the populace, between Poland and Europe, perhaps, as well. But then when it comes to the realpolitik, when it comes to what they're doing in terms of everyday governance and in terms of their international or foreign relations, it's probably less less extreme. The Supreme Court president has spoken to Monocle and said that she does feel as though her role is under some kind of threat, but so far she's absolutely refusing to, to go anywhere. Do you think that those moves from the government represent at least the government looking towards the idea of authoritarianism and seeing that I, that concept of governance as something that is attractive? The continuous reforms since 2015 that the Law and Justice Party have been implementing in Poland are definitely a breach of separation of powers. But again, the standpoint from which they're coming from is that they have a clear electoral mandate to do this. So. Part, so that agenda is not that different to what other democratically elected governments have been doing across Europe or in the United States, whereby 50 plus one gives you a majority or a sense of entitlement to throw established order, political order into the dustbin of history. So given the results that we saw at those recent elections and the fact that there are actually a lot of polls out there who are expressing their dissatisfaction with the government. It feels as though there is quite a gap between how Polish voters are feeling about all of this and the way that the government is behaving. Given that, do you think that the link between authoritarianism and what's happening in Poland, or even just this idea of the far right being on the rise, has it been overblown by the international press? I think that using that category, authoritarianism, rather skews our judgment of things. I think it's worthwhile to speak of liberalism, of majoritarian democracy, of populism, of an ethno-nationalist understanding of community. I don't think there have been any movements on the side of the government to imply that they have authoritarian yearnings per se, just to be analytically clear. Coming back to that split between what the, what the society wants and what the government has been doing since 2015. This has definitely been it was exemplified in the recent local elections on the 24th of October. So the Law and Justice Party have won. They got one third of the vote, which is they're the largest party. But at the same time, they will be governing only in perhaps three out of the 16 local governments, and they will only have majority in perhaps nine of the 16 local parliaments. When I look at Polish society, it feels as though the Poles really feel as though they've come a long way since the days of Soviet rule, and they would view modern-day Russia as a regime that is perhaps a threat to the way of life in Poland. With that in mind, if any Polish government were to start replicating the kind of rule that the Kremlin inflicts upon its society, there would be a lot of Poles who might have a bit of a problem with that, wouldn't you think? Thankfully, even the current government has its suspicions about Russia, and, and rightfully so, considering its rogue activities in Poland's immediate neighborhood. I think that the comparison between Poland and Russia is also not very analytically helpful. Russia has never had a functioning democracy. It had moments when this was on the horizon, but it never really materialized. So authoritarianism, light authoritarianism in Russia has definitely been entrenched since the 90s. What is happening in Poland is more similar to the developments, the polarization within the political sphere across Europe. But yes, that split between a liberal understanding of democracy and the sovereign understanding of democracy, as, as Vladimir Putin likes to call it, is still 
very visible in Polish society and even people on the right wing side of politics would probably not want to aspire to follow Putin and to follow his footsteps. Dr. Rok Dunan-Vonsevich from the UCL Institute of Education. This is Monocle Reports. Poland's judicial changes may have set off alarm bells internationally, but according to some locals, the political landscape isn't necessarily as polarized as it might seem. The ruling party didn't perform as well as expected in recent local elections, and one poll suggests that an openly gay pro-European candidate could be third favorite for president behind the incumbent Andre Duda and the former prime minister Donald Tusk, now president of the European Council. A progressive turn would mark a major shift for Poland, but a nation's history can be a tricky thing to shake off. When right-wing politics makes a seemingly sudden comeback, it's often less a case of the past returning than an expression of a sentiment that never really went away. And it can be found in some fairly unexpected places. Monocle's Chiara Ramella has this report. The Sicilian town of San Vitolo Capo is famous for its couscous. The local recipe dictates that it should be garnished with seafood and thick fish sauce. When recommending somewhere to try it, many will mention Alfredo, one of the best restaurants in the area. Its website features glossy shots of prawns and tuna steaks, but fails to show the other reason why Alfredo is known around San Vito. This restaurant's decor features references to its owner's political leanings. Busts and photographs of Benito Mussolini adorn the walls alongside fascist memorabilia. Il Duce's image is also printed on its business cards, alongside a picture of San Vito's beautiful beach. Last year, the Italian Senate approved an update to a 1952 law against sanctioning fascism. The new version renders the production, distribution or sale of objects representing fascist figures or the fascist party's symbols illegal. The change was particularly unwelcome at the souvenir shops near Il Duce's tomb in the town of Predapio, where you can buy such treats as Mussolini-branded truncheons. Yet restaurants, bars and cafes such as Alfredo's are easily found across the country. What Italy should do with the architectural and artistic legacy of its fascist past is a discussion that is unresolved. Gleaming, rationalist buildings can be found in most Italian cities and make for architecturally remarkable attractions. But accusations by some politicians, members of the populist Five Star Movement included, that the law infringes freedom of speech are misleading. In Spain, controversy around Franco's mausoleum is forcing a discussion on the line between memory and commemoration. When it comes to Italian fascism, the ambiguity is too often shunned. For Monocle, I am Chiara Rimella. Chiara Ramella reporting from Sicily. For more news and analysis, tune into Monocle 24's live daily programming or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. And don't forget to pick up a copy of the latest issue of Monocle magazine, which includes that interview with Poland Supreme Court President Melkotzata Gerstorf. This program was edited by Kenya Scarlett. I'm Ben Rylan. That's Monocle Reports. Goodbye.